This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Helen Farmer with you on today's episode of Afternoons. Such a privilege to be in conversation with the BAFTA award-winning and Oscar-nominated Palestinian filmmaker Farin Blusi. Her film, The Teacher, is in UAE cinemas now and she was talking to us about the logistics of casting and filming in the West Bank and the timing of the release as well. Plus, getting down to money matters with Kuya J. Talking setting a realistic budget and why the word budget maybe needs to be taken out of your vocabulary. In conversation with three fantastic techie teens ahead of a competition happening this weekend. Talking libido with a hormone nutritionist and parent-friendly workplace. Do you work for one? It is the UA label that is aiming to change business and society. But what are the criteria and who's doing it well? Fantastic to have you with us today, Helen Farmer, live until five. And recently I sat down with the Oscar-nominated and BAFTA award-winning Palestinian filmmaker, born, raised and educated in the UK, Farah Nablusi. Her film, The Teacher, is in UAE cinemas now. Great to have you with us and fantastic to be in conversation now with Farah Nabulsi, a Palestinian, British Oscar-nominated and BAFTA award-winning filmmaker and human rights advocate. Her first feature-length film, The Teacher, premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival with release across the Middle East and a UK release in March, entirely shot in the West Bank. It tells the story of a school teacher grappling with personal devastation, connecting with a talented student and an unexpected bond with a British social worker against the backdrop of a hostage situation and their neighbourhood in turmoil. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today and really offering the opportunity to dig into the filmmaking process and reflecting on the release so far. Um, how are you today? I'm good, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. I'm, I wanted to hear, before we get into the teacher, a little bit more about you and your personal and professional journey, because you were an investment banker initially, originally. What do we need to know about that time, and I guess your journey to now, and ultimately how it informs this incredible film you've made? Um, yeah, it's, it's been a really interesting journey, actually. I, I, as you said, I was in investment banking, and that's kind of what I studied as well and, and spent a number of, of years. Um, and then I ran a, a business, a for-profit business, for a number of years as well. But it was actually um, a trip to Palestine for the first time as an adult, um, not too long ago, about eight, nine years ago. Um, I'm Palestinian by blood, by heritage, but I was born, raised, educated in, in London in the UK. And so I go to Palestine for the first time as an adult. And despite knowing about the reality on the ground there, um, read the books, aware from my parents, uh, the news and so forth, um, there was no substitute for seeing with my own two eyes what was taking place on the ground in what is militarily occupied and colonized territory. And... Um, I was just blown away by, by the injustice and the discrimination and how systematic and, and um, meticulous it is, actually. And um, Anyway, I, I come away from it, and um, I spent a number of years just trying to figure out what it was that, that I could do um, that could tell these stories. And I, I, I kind of 
had been writing personally and therapeutically about what I'd seen and felt and witnessed. Mm -hmm. And and then it hit me at one point that I wanted to express myself creatively. Um, And at the same time, the most profound way you can tell stories about injustice and, and, um, and this cruel reality is, is, through, is, through, is through art. And for me, film is, you know, something I've always loved um, and cinema, theater, drama. And I just dove into the deep end and at some point realized that I can't do it all. So mm-hmm. I need to focus on what it is I, I, my, my heart is calling for. And uh, it was film. And yeah. what you've done so beautifully is obviously it's a cinematic piece in terms of the landscape, but it's the storytelling, it's the humanity, it's the those human connections that really allow, obviously, the characters to shine in that storytelling, but also, as you say, putting it in place in terms of context of where the story is unfolding. Where did the inspiration come for the teacher? And was there one person or a circumstance where you thought, gosh, that could be a, a really interesting jumping off point? Yeah, I think I think it's really the amalgamation of all my travels to Palestine, where I've met with dozens of Palestinians who have experienced firsthand much of the sort of cruel, absurd things that take place in the film, um, and even witnessed some of them myself and even experienced uh, to an extent. Um, and so it's that coupled with sort of my visual, verbal, vivid imagination as, as a storyteller, as a filmmaker. Um, and I also came across a, a, a story uh, about an Israeli soldier who had been abducted in 2006 and released in 2011 for over a thousand Palestinian political prisoners, hundreds of whom were women and children. And I remember, um, I remember actually when it was covered in the UK media at the time as well, thinking to myself, like, what a huge imbalance in value for, for, for human life. So I'd say that the teacher is really this amalgamation of all of these these stories um, that has inspired this particular film. As I said, shot entirely in the West Bank and, and years, obviously, in the writing and the making up to the point of actually being, you know, boots on ground filming. How on earth did that filming unfold? Could you mind kind of lifting the lid a little bit on the, the practical side mm. of that environment and getting people there? Yeah, it's um, so... It's it's probably one of the hardest things I've ever ever had to do, and you know they say investment banking is one of the toughest industries. Well, no, I think filmmaking is. And then when you throw in sort of militarily occupied, colonized territory to contend with, um, yeah, it's on a practical, pragmatic level, um, logistical level, so much harder. And so, yeah, you could say things like checkpoints and roadblocks, and and that really throws spanners into things. You know, for example, when we were supposed to have a two-day weekend and everyone went away and then couldn't get back for four days. And in the world of independent cinema, that's extremely, like, that's money lost and very frustrating. But really, for me, it was an emotional mental toll, to be honest, the challenges there. Um, kind of bear with me here, but you're, you're, you're making a film that's set in a really harsh um, environment. And then you're shooting in that environment while that harsh environment is unfolding around you in Mm -hmm. real time and that was really difficult to contend with so certain things that take place in the film which is a fiction film ultimately but very very rooted in truth and and reality things taking place in the film were also taking place around us um in real time and that was how did you how did you protect your energy and how did you stay centered and really be a leader of that film amid chaos and destruction and, and as you say kind of emotional dysregulation as well 
Do you know, I didn't always. Um, and there were moments where tears were shed and when I was feeling overwhelmed and exhausted and, and, and frustrated. And, um, but, you know, you have to keep going. And I think on the one hand, while this injustice is unfolding and you feel this pressure to do that justice in, in your film, it's also what drives you as well because you think, well, if, if I'm exhausted and if I'm going through this, well, what are the people who are experiencing mm. that reality um, uh, feeling? And so it kind of drives you to want to tell their stories and kind of lend your artistic expression to give voice to those who have been silenced or marginalized or being oppressed. So that's what I would turn to. I'd say, come on, Farah, pull, your, pull yourself together and, 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 and get it done. And actually, the, the, the cast who we bought from abroad... Um, Imogen Poots, who's a, who's a wonderful actress from the UK, um, Andrea Irvine, Stanley Townsend, Paul Hertzberg, they came over and they too had to kind of contend with what it was they were kind of recognizing and, and witnessing themselves. And on the other hand, and, and the responsibility of that, mm -hmm. but also really embracing Palestinians and the Palestinian kind of landscape and the people and, and loving that and enjoying that. And so we did do uplifting things and we would have, you know, wonderful dinners and lunches together and um, really just to try to stay, stay upbeat in such an environment. Up next, we're going to be asking Farah about the timing of the filming and the release. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. With Vietnamese foodies, fresh, naturally healthy and affordable dishes with authentic Vietnamese flavours. Order now on all delivery platforms. Visit vietnamesefoodies.com. Great to have you with us. We're going to be catching up with the latest from Offscript and the tennis after half past. But right now, this is part two of my conversation with Farah Nablusi, the Palestinian filmmaker and human rights activist. If you are just tuning in, have missed the first part of our conversation. Do check out the podcast tonight on Spotify, Apple Podcast, the Dubai Eye website. Can I ask about the timing of the shooting and the release? So when did you film The Teacher? So we shot The Teacher a year and a half ago, around a year and a half ago in the West Bank, as you'd said, in the, in the Nablus area. Um, and the release was, as, as you'd mentioned, Toronto International Film Festival in September 2023. That was our world premiere. Mm -hmm. And then we had our MENA premiere uh, at the Red Sea International Film Festival in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, where we took home the Best Actor Award and the Jury Award, which was the jury headed by Baz Luhrmann, wow. um, who's just, you know, fantastic filmmaker. Thank you. And when was the Red Sea event? That was December. Okay. And, and now we are in February where we've had this sort of GCC cinema-wide release. Um, and, we, yeah, we're moving forward. We've got the UK premiere, as you mentioned, at Glasgow in, at Film Festival in March. We'll be in Switzerland, Norway, the USA, and so forth will be, hopefully. Can we talk about the timing in terms of the, the release? And I guess what has unfolded since that Toronto September premiere. Um, how do you feel like, you know, the ongoing crisis has affected people's perceptions and reception of the movie and even how you feel about it yourself. Mm. I appreciate you asking me that. It's kind of like the elephant in the room sometimes. Um, you know, personally, I'm just, I'm torn. Um, I've, I've got a, a lot of pride um, in, 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 in having made this film and in it being released now, but also a lot of pain. I've been immersed in grief like most people um, these past few months. Um, and, and in, in absolute 
pain and solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on the ground in, in Gaza who are who enduring unimaginable, imaginable pain, loss, suffering. Um, and it does feel a little ridiculous um, to release a fiction film. It's not a documentary. It is, like I said, heavily rooted in truth and reality. And But it's fiction. And we are watching on our screens this this um, devastation unfolding in, in real time. Um, but on the other hand, I feel really grateful mm-hmm. that I have I have um, something to offer um, and and lend as a sort of active solidarity, telling telling the stories and lending a context in some ways that is often missing from the discourse. That's what I found so helpful as a viewer, and I should say it's a film so beautiful it made it made my chest ache. It really did, and I mean that as a as a compliment because I felt so connected to those characters in a way that, yes, of course, you can see the news unfolding, but to see that humanitarian side. And, you know, I think that's why, you know, these figures such as Motaz have become so influential and so important because it connects you to the human. And I think, as you said, filmmaking is such an amazing tool for conveying, you know, truth to power to conveying what's happening on the ground. And I think the time is actually quite beautiful and beneficial, although incredibly painful as you say yeah and it's it's nice somebody said to me that they had a conversation with someone who came out the cinemas the other day who clearly you know was not palestinian not arab and and sort of just they struck up a conversation he said you know oh did you like the film and he was he was like i i love the film i was totally blown away she said did you did you know about like what's going on in palestine just in general and he said yeah but i mean this just the film was recommended by a friend um and he goes but i i did know but this film made it real and I guess it's exactly that. It's, it's a deeply human story. Um, it's, it's centered around specific characters, but it is set in this, in this socio-political landscape that has been endured by Palestinians for decades. And I think it's just really important to be able to connect on that human level. I think you've already answered this question in terms of that anecdote from the man leaving the cinema. But what are your hopes? Well, how do you measure success of the movie? And I'm not talking about tickets sold and obviously mm. the amazing awards that you've already been nominated and, and won, but in terms of personal success and your goals, mm. what do you want to leave the audience with? You know, as a filmmaker, ultimately, I, with every film I ever make, um, I want to take audiences on an emotional journey. Um, and in, the term, in terms of the teacher, I really hope that I'll leave people sort of, you know, contemplating these characters and their lived experiences and the choices and decisions the characters made and this cruel reality in which they are forced to make them. And I guess also because of the pertinent time, I would add, I hope I lend some context to the current reality at this crucial juncture in the discourse on Palestine. Well, I can only speak for myself, but were you talking about contemplation there? I think it is a film that absolutely stayed with you both in terms of those huge themes but also those those personal stories and the connections that you see unfold it's um it's an absolute triumph and you should be incredibly proud of you and the crew and everything that's gone on behind the scenes as i said i cannot begin to imagine the logistical details of shooting in that environment we're not tempted to just set it somewhere else Do you know, I was, I mean, in the world of filmmaking, you say, choose the path of least resistance. And I I did contemplate, but um, I'm so, so happy that we we shot in Palestine. The topography you could see in the film is is beautiful. We could be very fast with our shots and wide. And um, the authenticity that it lent was just priceless. Working with the people there, um, the generosity, the spirit of the Palestinian people on the ground is really something 
Um, and so, and working with the talent there, the local talent that don't get the opportunities as much as others in the industry the around showcase. the world. Um, so, honestly, no regrets. But it was it was overwhelming. It was exhausting. But I'm just so glad we did. We should just say a special shout out to the school. These soaring strings are just so so evocative and. I know you'll see the film in a completely different way to those of us going to the cinema because you know the nuts and bolts, you know the backstory, you know the, you know, the cast dinners, but it's all come together yeah. with well, I'll, such I'll, incredible I'll, I'll, effect. Thank you. I'll shout out then Alex Baranowski did, did, did the did an amazing yes. job. So what's next? I know you're not someone to rest on <laughs> any laurels at all, Farah. So what are you working on now? I know you've got the UK premiere coming up mm. and... You know, worldwide domination. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> um, are you already thinking about a new project? Um, I'm, I'm writing. I'm writing two new projects. Um, the truth is, though, the last few months with everything happening in Gaza, I've, I've, I've almost. I don't want to say lost the will. It's not that. I just. I'm. I'm unable to focus as much. So prior, um, I was writing, and there is there is two potential stories on the horizon, um, and I hope to be able to like refocus. But other than that, it's it's focus on the teacher, um, really, kind of getting it out there. Um, but yeah, projects projects are coming. I would say give yourself some grace at this time. Um, yeah. I think a lot of people need to have a bit of self-compassion. It's a very, very challenging time, whether you are personally connected as you are because of family or circumstances or just as a human observing what's happening. But as I said, I think the film's an incredible tool for really bringing it home and you should be very, very proud. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Brandon Bulsey speaking to us here at Dubai Eye 103.8. The teacher is on release here in UAE cinemas. Um, and I do urge you, we're hoping for streaming in the future too, because it deserves to be seen by as many people as possible. Thank you again to Farah Nablusi, uh, Oscar-nominated and BAFTA award-winning Palestinian filmmaker. I really urge you to go and check out The Teacher. It's a truly, truly groundbreaking and heartbreaking movie. It's in UAE cinemas now. If you have just tuned in and want to hear the whole of our conversation, the podcast will be live very soon indeed. This is Money Matters with National Bonds. Save, invest, prosper. We are talking money between now and four o'clock. We have brought in financial educator Jay Tolentino, a.k.a. Kuya Jay. He's on a mission to educate the UAE, in particular the Filipino community, um, about, well, where you've gone wrong and <laughs> some of the opportunities that are here. And I think we're going to start with the basics uh-huh. on today's show. And I know it's February and it's often a January topic of we are going to do better with our money in 2024. <laughs> and it's the dreaded B word, Budget. budget. So we're talking about how to create and crucially stick to a budget. Mm-hmm. And you think we should change our perspective around that yeah. word. Tell us a little bit more, Jay. Everything begins with a mindset, right? If you want to change the way you behave, you have to change the way you think. And what I have learned about budgeting is when people approach me, they have this thinking that budgeting limits them. What I, what I tell them is that a budget should not limit you. It should liberate you. Is it a bit like when you go on a diet and then when, when, when you're on <laughs> exactly. a diet, all you can think about are the things that you know you shouldn't you be shouldn't eating? You shouldn't be eating, yeah. So with the budget, you know, a lot of people think, oh gosh, you know, that's going to make my day really yeah. unpleasant or I can't exactly. do this. Why can a budget liberate you? Yeah, because if you think that, if you mention budgeting traditionally, it is exactly like that, like a diet. Negative. But if you tell people like, would you want to spend on the things that you love? So it transitions into a way that you allow the person to spend without any guilt. So instead of saying budgeting, I tell them to reframe it into an intentional spending plan. I like that. 
So it's more conscious spending. It's more conscious spending, exactly. We've spoken before about Ramat Sethi, who talks about mm. how to live. In, if you haven't read this book, you really must. It's, you know, I will teach you to be rich. Or if you, if you want to do a bit of a hack, you can watch <laughs> it on YouTube, uh, yeah. on, on Netflix. Um, and he talks about how to live your rich life, which is sure. exactly that. It's not about cutting your spending across mm. absolutely all areas. It's where do I want to spend my money? What's my priority? Yes. You know, it might be you don't really care about cars. So mm. you, you, you drive a, a rubbish car, but you do want to spend on travel, yes. for example. Um, how important is it to be clear on your financial goals? I guess okay. establishing your why. Mm, yeah. So um, having a clear goal allows you to see the future. Where do you really want to go from today? And it lets you focus on what's really important to you. In addition to having a clear goal, you have to have a clear value system. What do you really value most, right? It has something to be deep within you. Can you explain what, some examples of people's values when it comes mm. to spending and saving? Yeah. So let's say you value education. You value professional growth or personal growth. So I'd, instead of me going out on uh, partying outside, I'd rather spend my money on seminars, paid mentorships, or books. Mm -hmm. So that's where my money would go. Whereas to someone else, it might be health. You know, they, yeah. they would be happy to spend on, on a, a personal trainer yes. or, you know, yes. really good quality food. And some people would think that having a personal trainer is a luxury, but for the people, for the person who values uh, physical health, mm -hmm. it is an investment. Mm -hmm. Like how you spend on health will, uh, will make you live healthier and prevent diseases, which will also be yeah, a costly be, be expense really in the future, right? Good point. Um, in terms of finding that financial why, that's going to look different for different people uh -huh. as well. Sometimes it might be getting out of debt, you know, yeah. you know or, you know, buying a property. Mm -hmm, you know. mm -hmm. So how do you work with clients in terms of establishing your why? Because mm. having this idea of like, I just want to have more money, yeah. isn't that helpful? Yeah. So for the financial why, you really have to know what definition of success is and then understand why, right? The most basic exercise that I do is asking the five whys. Like, I want to I have a huge home. Why? Why do you want to have a huge home? Mm -hmm. And then it, after, you, after you ask five questions of why, it will boil down to an emotional decision or an emotional um, reaction. Like, because I want to secure my family. Which comes back to your point before about the psychology of money, mm, this, money exactly. this money mindset. Uh, J. Adrian Tolentino, a.k.a. Kuya J. is in the studio. We're going to talk next about how you can't improve it until you measure it, reviewing your spending in order to create and stick to a realistic budget. Plus, what about what if there's an emergency? What happens next? This is Money Matters with National Bonds. Save, invest, prosper. We are talking money and you can't make changes unless you know exactly what is going on with your finances. We have got Kuya Jay, we've got Jay Adrian Talentino in the studio. He's a financial educator and we're reframing the idea of budgeting, talking about intentional spending or as one listener's got in touch <laughs> saying, intentional saving yes. must be louder than intentional spending. Um, a really good insight from Tony, who I think must be a philosopher, saying, great show <laughs> as always. Figure out the difference between happiness and pleasure, then spend on happiness not pleasure. Mm. You were even expanding on that concept. Yeah. yeah, so happiness, well, actually for me, happiness is actually more short-term than another word called joy. Uh, happiness is a, is a short-term fleeting feeling. Joy is long-lasting. Now, for the, for the question, yeah, I would, I would rather go for the happiness versus the uh, pleasure because, mm -hmm. yeah, pleasure is sometimes, uh, we, we spend on it because of, uh, of a short-term burst of emotion and then suddenly 
there will be times you will regret it. I feel like you're sure. speaking to my soul about my late night internet <laughs> shopping right now. But, but it is, it's that, it's that short term gratification. It's you know? about, yeah. Whereas we're talking there about finding your why. You know, mm. what, why do you want to save money? What are you mm. saving towards? How important slash painful can it be to review your recent spending? You True. know, before you manage it, you've you have to. got to understand where it's going, right? Sure. Sure. Any advice on that? Because mm. it's so, so common for many, many people, <laughs> she said talking about herself, to avoid doing that. We don't, it's, it's not, it's not <laughs> something I would look forward to at all. Why yeah. is it so crucial? It is crucial because if you want to go somewhere, you've got to know where you are right now, right? And looking at your numbers tells you in all honesty, what you're doing with money. And where your, there, there's a quote that says, where your heart is, there, where your money is, there your heart is, right? And by, by doing <laughs> that... Like, okay, so, so, <laughs> so mine is my wardrobe. <laughs> so is your, yeah, it, it can be. And um, if you do that, there, there's no other way of lying to, your, to yourself, like this is where your money is going. And if you want to change your life, you want to change where your money is going, going to right now. So um, to simplify... Reviewing your finances, just look at at the last three months. Basically, that, that's your basic behavior about money. And then look back at your financial why and your financial goals and your values. And then ask yourself, is this expense still worth, is, is it still aligned with my values and my, uh, my why? If not, then cut it off because that's what's going to help you moving forward. How can you simplify those mm-hmm. expense categories? Mm-hmm. How, yeah. When we talk there about you know, happiness and, and, and pleasure, um, <laughs> We're looking after our future self. That's yeah. ultimately what we're doing. And I think that's why a lot of people avoid thinking about money. It's, we mm. don't, it's abstract to think about ourselves, uh-huh. you know, not working. It's abstract to think about, our, you know, ourselves in 30 years time. But that, you know, <laughs> fingers crossed, is going to be the case. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about those kind of three categories yes. that you identify. So for expenses, you just simplify the three major categories. Your first is your savings slash investing. Next is your needs and your wants. Wants. That's how simple it is. So and, needs would be what? Needs would be F-U-S-D. Uh, foods and groceries, utilities, shelter and transportation. That's the exact same order. Now, we should just say <laughs> congratulations to you. You've uh-huh. just become a father. Oh, thank you. A week ago. My goodness. <laughs> exactly. Seven days ago. Yes. So fresh and, and, uh, and fine with it. I would also add education in there. Education is there, yeah, because you have kids. That's it's part of it. Yeah. The, one of the biggest outgoings mm-hmm. for so, so many families here. You know, rent and education, it's, it, it's, it's huge. So that would be in your needs category. And mm-hmm. then once, once, which is my little online shopping <laughs> habit, you know, whatever that, whatever whatever that might be. Whatever it is, that's valuable to you. And then in terms of, do you have a formula, a breakdown for those mm-hmm. three expenses, Jay, that you think is a really good framework for a lot of people? There's a, the, the, some of the people would say the 50, 30, 20 uh, budgeting, like 50% goes to your expense, uh, to your needs, and then 20% goes to your savings, and then the rest goes to your uh, wants. Mm-hmm. But what I prefer is a value-based type of uh, spending. Like, what do you really care most about, right? But at the same time, you, that's why the, the template that I use is you focus first on saving and investing before you even spend on the needs and the wants. Okay. So you build the habit of saving. It's not about the amount. It's about the small habits that you're building over time. And this can be things like spending a, you know, a few hours setting up automated payments. Yeah. So on payday, you know, you're, you're, you're paying yourself into mm-hmm. your savings account. You're paying yourself into your investment mm-hmm. funds. And that is happening Day one, day one of payday. Yeah. Or even paying off debt. Because Definitely. if you're not paying off debt, um, you're just backsliding on your finances. Because interest rate usually is 3%. 
make it 12 months, it's 36%. You lost 36% of your money already. So Ugh. as early as you can, get out of debt. Now, we should have some flexibility in this, yes, surely, because sure. much like a diet, and I'm not mm. saying cheat days necessarily, but you know, if you're quote-unquote good 80% of the time and 20%, mm. you know, maybe not so much, <laughs> um, how, how can we incorporate a bit of flexibility? And I guess maybe some making some gradual changes uh-huh. um, to our budget True. as well. What do you advise? So uh, if, you, if, if it's the first time that you're really trying to get serious about money, then be kind to yourself by letting some of the things that you forgot to allocate or to uh, compute or to calculate, like allowing 5 to 10% of uh, wiggle room or buffer for your wants and needs, it's fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have to aim for perfection when you're budgeting or doing this. You have to aim for progress. That's what's more important. Because honestly, even for me, when we do budgeting with my wife, we do not aim like it has to be like, uh, it has to be balanced, like, if we earned this much, this is really where it should go. I mean, and, we allow this time. And this thank you for, for you know, bringing your wife into the conversations. I feel yeah. like it has to be a team effort, right? True. You know, we know that money is one of the major contributing <laughs> factors to so many marriages splitting up. So being uh-huh. on the same page with your partner, working towards common goals, absolutely crucial. Um, we've had a message going, any apps you recommend or are okay. you more of an Excel spreadsheet guy? I'm using both because the challenge with apps is that it's not so... It's not easily personalized. Mm. I've tried several budgeting apps, but I'd still prefer to have my Excel sheet, my intentional spending plan template. I give it for free. And it's much easier to do every month. And then for the tracking, I'm using Crunch. It's an app that automates my tracking for different UE accounts. So that's what we do. Much easier. Jay, for anyone that's reached out to you and you do kind of financial coaching and, mm-hmm. and education, you mentioned there some free resources. What's the best oh, yeah. way of getting in touch with you? Well, you can, you can just message me on my LinkedIn. Jay Adrian Tolentino, that's it. If you want to send me the word money, let's manifest it. Send me the word money to 4001 <laughs> and I will send you Jay's detail. Thank you so, so much. Absolute pleasure always. to see you. We will be continuing the Money Matter conversations on the show every single Tuesday afternoon. Here are some things that I love. I love a busy studio and I love meeting young, inspirational people. So I'm very happy indeed right now because we've got three students joining us live to talk about Hackathon. It's been organised by three students from Dubai College, four high school students here in the UAE, competing on a national level, building what they're calling novel and creative projects using AI tools and technology. With cash prizes, we should point out. We've got Adi, Maha and Rishab in the studio. Um, Adi, this has been your kind of brainchild a little bit. Can you tell us where the idea and inspiration came to curate this event? Uh huh. Yeah, sure. So I think it all started off as all of us individually participating in hackathons in the past. And I can speak for all of us here when we say we really enjoyed the experiences and thought we took away a lot of them, a lot from them. Can I ask you, this is where I sound like a grandmother. <laughs> what is a hackathon exactly? <laughs> so basically, a hackathon is just like a coding competition where they usually give you a prompt for a project. And then you and your team or you as an individual come up with your own solution for their prompt and code it up and then like submit it. And this all happens usually within the span of a few days. Oh, wow. So kind of timed as such, but it's kind of contained. Would you mind giving us some examples of hackathons you've been in the past? or I guess the projects that you've been working on, just so we can understand what might happen over that time period. Mm -hmm. Sure. So one hackathon I participated in the past was called AI for UX. So... The prompt was to use AI technologies 
to help in the field of user experience for companies. So an example of the projects I created was something that analyzes the color schemes of websites and then like tell, gives you a rating and like suggested color schemes. So that's kind of the solution you come up with. I created in a few days and I really just love the process. I enjoyed it a lot. So you notice a bit of a gap here in the UAE for other students to be participating. So, I mean, the brains we've got in the studio, it's not a case of, oh, there's a bit of a gap in the market. It's like, we're going to do our own. Um, Maha, tell us a little bit about what students can expect from this event. It's going to be happening very soon indeed. When's, when's it all going to be unfolding and what can we expect? Yeah, sure. So it starts March 1st on Friday and goes on to March 3rd on Sunday. So on March 1st, we will be hosting a webinar. Now, this webinar is at 2 p.m. and it will be teaching students how to use AI tools that are already on the market. We have a really strong um, postulate that we shouldn't reinvent the wheel. Instead, we should use tools that are already available, but use them well. Okay, which brings me to ask, what kind of response have you had? And I guess the, maybe a bit of the profile of the students that are going to be participating, uh, Rochelle, because we're talking there about, you know, teaching some of these tools, but presumably a lot of the people getting involved are already using them at quite a high level. So we were actually really humbled by the response. When we started this project, we were hoping to get around 150 signups. And as of yesterday, we are at over 250 signups from over 100 teams. And wow. One of the main goals we had with this project was to promote diversity because tech can kind of sometimes feel like a closed field. Mm -hmm. So we're really proud. We have over 24 schools and 34 nationalities participating. And what we're really happy about is we have a 30% female participation rate. And to this end, we've created some special prizes. We have special prizes for majority women teams and majority Emirati teams. As these are some of the f sectors we feel are underrepresented in tech. That's so interesting in terms of that response. There's obviously such an appetite because you know, we know just how crucial AI is going to be. I and mean, the fact of the matter is, you know, you guys have probably know more, know more than the vast majority of people listening now about the real life applications of AI and where it's going to take your jobs in the future. My job in particular, I heard this morning that <laughs> apparently podcasting is at one of the most, danger, most dangerous uh, areas to be working in. Um, we were just talking off air there about Sora. Um, tell us a little bit about Sora. Adi, and what, what do we need to know? Because I, I, what I listened to is that Hollywood studios are absolutely terrified. Tyler Perry had apparently planned to add $800 million worth of extensions to his film studio. Watch some of the videos that Sora from uh, and said, well, there's just no need. AI's going to do it in the future. What, what's, um, what are some of the names to know right now, do you think? Yeah, so OpenAI is currently making like rapid developments in this AI field, especially with like Sora, the new GPTs. And it's all expanding at like a very rapid pace. Just a few years ago, um, chat models weren't really even that powerful at all. But now suddenly they're replacing script writers. There's a full Hollywood strike. Mm -hmm. And now with Sora, it can develop full videos with your style. All you have to do is give it a text prompt. So yeah, I think... Some people are very concerned about their jobs, as you spoke about. But I think these are just added tools to everyone's kits. So, you know, these can be used in the future, just like any other tool. And I think there would be some decreases in jobs mm -hmm. in some places, especially like animation with now Sora. But 
I think this will be compensated by an increase in jobs in other fields like AI making this a thing. We are talking about the hackathon. It's been organised by high school students. Four high school students can be happening this weekend. We're going to find out more. Um, It is on waitlist only right now, but I'm kind of curious to find out how the team expects this is going to develop over the next few years. And yes, prizes as well. Um, We're speaking to the team about what to expect and their advice for fellow students. How can you win the hackathon? Can they give us a hack? Joining us in studio, the co-organisators of Hackathon. It's organised by high school students for them and competing on a national level this weekend to build novel and creative projects using AI tools and technology with some prizes. We've got the founder, Adi, with us and co-founders, Maha and Rishabh. Can we talk prizes, Adi? I mean, obviously there's glory, which, you know, there's, there's something that's going on the resume. What else is up for grabs this weekend for the, for the takers of the trophies? Well, thanks to our sponsors, Open ENBD, DIFC, um, and we're in collaboration with the National Program for Coders. They've all been pitching in, and so currently we have over 10,000 dirhams worth in prizes. So for first place, you can get up to 2,000 dirhams cash, as well as 2,500 dirhams hail rewards. So that's another one of our sponsors, Hale Education. Okay. I want to ask you about the judging because is this quite a subjective thing, Maha? Who's doing the judging and what are some of the criteria they're going to be looking for this weekend from these uh, projects? So on Sunday, we're planning to judge uh, the DIFC Innovation Hub. Now we have three judging panels and the majority of the judges are going to be from our sponsors. So EMBD, DIFC, uh, DMI, uh, Hale and the UAE's National Program of Coders. The criteria is on our website, UAE Innovate, and it's based on, first of all, of course, the the completeness of the solution because it's all well and good having an idea, but implementing on that idea is just as important. There's also um, scoring related to the relevance of the prompt because we want to show a sense of adaptability Um, with certain problems in our world right now. Mm -hmm. So that's an overview of the judging process. And we're really excited to see the full stack solutions. What about presentation skills? Because you can have the most amazing thing, but if you can't actually deliver and communicate it, is that that going to be taken into consideration? Yes. Thank you for reminding me. Presentation skills are also a big factor. And during the day and a half, they get to work on it online. That's something we really emphasize to work on because It's fine to have an amazing solution, but unless you can market that solution, then it's not going to go anywhere, unfortunately. There's no point. Um, Rishab, would you mind explaining a little bit about sample projects? Because if people do want to get ahead of the game, I actually think it would be really interesting for students and parents to have a look at this, to really get an understanding of what some amazing teens are capable of. Is there anywhere we can go and do that? Mm -hmm. So if you look at our website, we have a set of sample projects on there. Each of us, so the three of us, Adi and Maha as well, we took the time, one and a half days, and we created our own sample projects. And you can see the code as well as the video tutorial of how we got around to making that project on our website. Okay, I need to ask all of you about next steps because it sounds like judging for what you're saying before in terms of response you know more than 250 um you know people get you know teams involved wait list now it sounds like you're onto something here so Adi you you guys are in year 12 at Dubai College so heading off to college in a year or so what's the plan moving forward is there a succession plan for hackathon 
Yeah, for sure. So I think we want to make this hackathon um, a competition that's bigger just than just the three of us students. So what we've done is we've set up a system where for each year we're gonna um, we're gonna elect a new panel to a new organization team, and we're gonna sort of pass down the responsibilities to them. So we're gonna be in we're gonna take more of a backseat position. So while we're off in colleges, this hackathon would still continue to exist. I love the idea of kind of this up and coming talent and, you know, like names to watch and think about, you know, the role that you can have in someone's kind of future career and success, which leads me to ask you about your own plans. Could we go around the studio and say what you're studying and what your hopes are for the next couple of years? Rishabh, can we start with you? Mm -hmm. So I think uh, you're going to hear a lot of similar answers here. We're all (laughs) a lot of uh, STEM students. So currently we're all in Dubai College. I'm studying maths, uh, physics and computer science. And then college hopefully in a couple of years what would you like I mean ultimately I think it's not just academics for college you know you get so much more out of that university experience but where are you hoping that might take you in the future Uh, I'm hoping to go to the US I haven't decided on an exact degree yet but the US just seems like to have a college experience that I would love Mm -hmm. Maha what about you yeah so similar to Rushab uh, I'm also at DC Dubai College and I take physics chemistry math and computer science (laughs) <laughs> my little brain cells over here exploding and the states for you sounds like you saying, saying off air that your sister's there and uh what would what does success look like and i hate to do that awful kind of job interview question but you know fast forward 10 years what what kind of job would you love to be doing and what do you think would be making you happy at that stage uh personally i think a job where you implement technology to help people and to benefit those who are perhaps not able to benefit by themselves. Mm-hmm. That's something that I aim to be in. But that's an aspiration, and we can only hope to get there. Yeah, I can tell by the look in your eye that's going to happen, which I think leads really nicely added to what you were saying before about people feeling like jobs are under threat because of AI. But I think what you've just spoken about really beautifully there is actually where the opportunities lie for using these technologies as tools. What about you? What are you studying, and what's the plan? <laughs> so I think it's, again, very similar to what they have said. So... I'm studying maths, further maths, physics, and CS at school. And I would really like to perhaps get into university, also at US, for engineering. And, you know, in the future, use my engineering skills to help better the world, really, like, use the new skills to make lives across, like, in developing countries and help simplify their worlds. Well, guys, if anyone can do it, it's you guys. Um, please let me know the names of your company so I can buy some stocks. Yes, a little bit of insider <laughs> trading. Don't mind talking about that. I've had the messages going, please tell us more about the competition. Um, the hackathon is happening this weekend. Um, it is waitlist only right now, but if you send me the word tech to 4001, I will send you the link. As we said, this is the first iteration, but we know it's not going to be the last, and I do urge you to go over there, have a look at some of the sample projects and just see what this team are capable of. Guys, thank you so, so much. Don't forget us. Bring that talent back to the UAE, please. And uh, we'd love to hear about how this develops in the future. Thank you so, so much, Adit Maha and Rishab in the studio. Joining us in studio, we've got Jo Proctor. She's a hormone nutritionist. Um, we're tackling the sometimes confusing topic of libido and ultimately the role that our hormones play in that. What we can be doing to boost it and what can happen as we get older as well. Um, jo Proctor, what is a hormone nutritionist? What's, tell us a little <laughs> bit about what and why you do what you do. Um, okay, well, I call myself a hormone nutritionist. And actually, these days, I call myself a hormone holistic nutritionist, right? So, but I 
I generally work with women and their hormone health, uh, but I do look at a holistic approach because that's something I've found out. It's not just about food. No, it really isn't. And, no. you know, we're talking more and more about that mind gut connection. Um, you talk a lot about the importance of tuning into your cycle. Yeah. And that is on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. But, you know, as we're going to be exploring now, like over that whole life as well, really. Um, I said it's a confusing issue. What exactly is the libido in men and women? Okay, so libido is your sex drive. Okay, so the ability to feel desire, you know, to be intimate. And it's governed by a cocktail of hormones. And then the hormones are then can be externally influenced by things like stress and diet, etc. Mm -hmm. But these hormones, so we have testosterone, which is more in men, less in women. But this drives the arousal, the desire. Then we have estrogen, which is um, role is to actually provide lubrication and nourishment of the reproductive tissues. Uh, then we have progesterone, which is interesting progesterone because this actually alters the perception of intimacy. So we actually see this uh, in the menstrual cycle in a really good example, because in that second half, we kind of move away from wanting, um, you know, more of the physical act to wanting more emotional intimacy. And connection. Right. Okay. Okay. That bonding, that like more cuddling, more conversation, you know, like appreciating the th little things they do for you. So feeling close, feeling like, you know, you're close to your partner, which then kind of course lead to the physical side as well. But that's Absolutely. interesting to think about the role of those three sex hormones. Yeah. Um, what are some of the misconceptions about libido that you've heard over the years, whether it's with clients or even in social media? I think it's um, first of like the role between men and women. Okay, so typically we think men are more um, you know, higher libido than women, but not necessarily. We do often find women who have higher than their partner. So I think it's really important actually when you come together with somebody new that you have that conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Just that open, honest, conscious communication. Like, what is your libido? How high is your sex drive? What are your expectations here, right? Because if you're not aligned, sometimes it's too different. Mm -hmm. Can't really fix it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. What are some libido killers, Joe Proctor? Yeah, and there's a lot, right? So stress is like ultimate, number one, okay? Stress can take many, many forms. We often think about stress being workplace, yeah. but actually for parents I think that stress of I mean for new parents you know there's so many interesting studies about what can happen after giving birth and how long it takes a couple to get back to where they were before and it sounds like around the age of six of that child seems to be <laughs> when that is because we really can't you know overemphasize just how much you don't want to be with, intimate with your partner when mm -hmm. you're absolutely exhausted yeah. or t feeling taken for granted Exactly. For, for example. So yes, there is that workplace stress and I think um, that will absolutely come up. But I think stress can come from all different places. Many, many areas. Like you said, physical exhaustion. So you're not going to be in the mood if you're physically exhausted. Then just if you are, you know, so distracted with your mind, overthinking, worried from what's gone on in the day, you're not going to be present mm -hmm. and get in the mood with your partner. Um, and then there is stress coming from the fact that, yeah, you don't feel emotionally supported. For a woman especially, we need that to be able to get in the mood. And this happens in families, yeah, like you start to have children and then you start to see that your partner is maybe not, um, you know, helping out in that. Because nowadays, you see, back in the roles, traditional roles, we had women the nurturers, men the protective provider. Nowadays, that's kind of like blurring lines. Mm -hmm. So the woman is also this protective provider. So she wants the man to also be a little bit of the nurturer. And when she's not seen that, it's a 
it's a turn off. I would also say, and I've listened to some really interesting um, podcasts recently about um, kind of sex psychology out of the UK, talking about if male or female feels like they're having to look after their partner as if they're another child. Mm. That's not very sexy either. Not at all. We're going to be talking about the role of hormones, you know, especially as we age, because we have had a question saying, does HRT help with low libido? And we're going to talk about ways to reignite the spark as well. We're talking hormone health now and libido in particular with Joe Proctor. She's a holistic hormone nutritionist and... Um, I wanted to ask what happens to our hormones as we get older, especially in relation to the libido, Joe. What do we need to know? Yeah, so obviously as we get older into perimenopause, menopause stage, you are losing those hormones I mentioned earlier. You're losing your estrogen, your testosterone, progesterone. So you're losing that desire and that arousal. You're losing the lubrication. You know, so you will come to a point where things have dried up. Well, that's as women in particular, but also with men, you know, we talk about the, the male menopause, which I feel like is a slightly misleading, but you know, the antropause, you know, that those yeah. low levels of testosterone depleting as well. Yeah. yeah. So it can happen to both partners at the same time, potentially. Can. Yeah. Which actually is quite nice, you no, know, because if then you don't have that out of balance, mm-hmm. right? But yeah, it's going to happen in men a little bit less. Of course, you know, they do have still higher levels than women. Um, but honestly, I think as we get into that next stage, a lot of it is about acceptance, mm. right? This is this is age, this is life, right? This is where we are now. And then how can we go from here? And we've had a message here saying, um, any insight on supplementation for men and women yeah, okay. regarding hormone health? So um, for women, saffron is a really good one. Interesting. Yeah. Could you do it a little bit on your risotto or is it gonna, uh, or is a bit or is it a bit more complicated than that? You can get it that? like actual supplement form, but also you can have it in like a tea or you can cook with it. So um, it's really good for lubrication, um, so especially if you're older, and it's just good for increasing arousal. Because there is something called female dysfunctional dis- uh, sexual dysfunction disorder, a little bit like men. Mm-hmm. It's just less spoken about. Interesting. So mm-hmm. saffron is a supplement. Is it wildly expensive because saffron is? Can be. Not as crazy as you think. Um, but, what about men? I mean, obviously, yeah. there are, you know, there's erectile dysfunction issues, which is a kind of a, a medical topic for another day. And obviously, there are treatments for that accordingly. But supplementation was the message that came in. Anything you'd recommend for men? Actually, for that particular issue, uh, Panax Ginseng is really good for that. Research has shown it improves erectile dysfunction. Interesting, because ginseng has been obviously talked about when it comes to brain health and function and, you know, or, you know, neuropathways, but also kind of capillaries yeah. and things like that. Okay. It increases the nitric oxide, so the blood flow okay. to the, the area. Yeah. The area. <laughs> um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about HRT, because Matt is here saying, can, this was came through on social media, saying, can HRT help low libido? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's increasing your estrogen. And your, you know, those sex hormones that you have uh, lost during the menopause. So yes, of course it can. But again, it's still, I feel, it's not about trying to be where we were. Mm. You know, different life stage. Yeah. Um. Lastly, quick tips on reigniting the spark. Yeah. Okay. So first, on the kind of, you know, if you're in a kind of marriage where there is not so much communication going on. Um, you know, understanding of one another's needs and desires. Having that weekly or daily check-in is amazing, right? A, a, t- a specific time when you come together and you ask each other, like, how satisfied are you today? You know, was there something I said that, you know, made you feel this way? Just 
having that is amazing. Please don't laugh at what I'm about to say. (laughs) But I'm watching Love is Blind on Netflix right now, which is trash. And don't waste your time (laughs) on it. Your brain will rot. But one of the couples, and they were on their honeymoon. I mean, it's all Anyway, please don't judge me. And he was saying he likes to do do that night, have a little debrief with his partner, so to speak, and talk about, you know, how was your day? And really listen to each other, but also, you know, how are you feeling in the relationship? Um, And I think that's really important because that communication from the outset, whether you are, you know, 20 or 80, is, is absolutely crucial to be able to initiate, but also to be turned down easily and, you know, just be on the same page. Exactly. Because throughout the day, there's so many subtle little things that can happen, but get missed. Mm. Like a tone of voice, a certain word used. And then you go off to work and you're just burying that. It's sitting within you, right? And that's when things like resentment comes later on. And regular listeners will know, um, the Gottman Institute talking about the four horsemen of marriages heading for divorce. When there's resentment or contempt, you're in trouble. Exactly. It can snowball. Exactly. Um, last question, Joe. How do you work with people and women in particular when it comes to their hormone health and the mm-hmm. role that nutrition plays? And how, I guess, to get in touch with you as well, yeah. if you don't mind. So, uh, joeproctor.com is my website. I'm at joeproctor.nutrition on Instagram. So, I generally work in packages rather than just one off consultations mm-hmm. because it's a journey. So, um, I see my clients each week. We have regular check ins for accountability. Um, but yeah, we do like a full case history. We'll look at their, their hormone profile, everything, a whole holistic approach. And then it will be diet, lifestyle, supplement recommendations, any testing as well. That's appropriate. Thank you so much. Amazing. I think it's a really important topic. I know it's not a comfortable thing to be thinking about or talking about, certainly. Yeah. Um, but things don't get better by themselves. <laughs> Absolutely. And this topic of relationships is so important. Actually, something that I'm starting now is a transformation program for corporate wellness. You know, obviously not this topic of libido, but in terms of relationships and communication, I mm-hmm. think they're just so important to be there in our workspace. If you want Joe's details, you can send me the word health. I'd be very happy to send over the Instagram, which is a great resource in itself, but has all the ways of getting in touch as well. Thank you so, Thank so, you so, so much. Thank you so much, Han. We're exploring the concept and the certification of parent-friendly workplaces in the UAE now with Leila Al-Hassan, the Senior Advisor at the Abu Dhabi Early Childhood Authority. Lovely to have you with us, Leila, and I know it's a big day for you guys there. Um, Tell us a little bit about, well, the label, the parent-friendly label. Why is it such an important one here in the region and what are the origins of that certification? So thank you for having us, Helen. It is a super exciting day. We just opened up applications for the whole of the UAE, for any organization willing and interested to, you know, put their foot forward and apply to earn the parent-friendly label. And what's really exciting is to see that the number rise over the years, the number of parent-friendly workplaces across the UAE. So this is becoming more than just an award program. This is becoming a national movement, and we're really, really proud of that. Uh, To start off, the label is essentially um, a certification, as you mentioned, for government, for organizations within the semi-government or private sector uh, in the UAE. You have to have been set up for at least two years. And we have a set of criteria that we've developed upon which organizations can be assessed. And these are criteria that were developed with business for business. They've been reviewed by UNICEF as well. 
And they require the organizations to really not only be supportive for parents of young children, Mm -hmm. but also have the culture, the organizational culture, as well as the policies in place. Leila Al-Hassan with us today, Senior Advisor at the Abu Dhabi Early Childhood Authority. Let's talk about that assessment criteria. Would you mind kind of unpacking it? Because I'm sure people are listening going, well, you know, my definition might be different to yours. What exactly are you looking for in order to give that award? So the best way to share what we're looking for is to really share with you the amazing leading practices we've seen so far. Mm -hmm. So 17 organizations have been recognized by the UAE's leadership since we launched in 2021. And these are organizations that have gone above and beyond what labor law requires them to do. So, for example, if labor law requires organizations to offer 45 days of maternity leave, these are organizations, Helen, that are looking at shared parental leave for the father, equal for the father and mother of around 126 days fully paid. So you have a really major jump here in their offering for their employees. Another example of a leading practice that we've seen in some of these organizations right here in the UAE. I'm not talking about abroad. These are right here in this country. You know, these are organizations that are offering work from anywhere during the summer, uh, unlimited nursing breaks because they understand the importance of breastfeeding, peer-led support groups for parenting. Mm -hmm. And even one of the companies we saw offers that when the woman, uh, when the new mother returns from maternity leave, she can work for shorter days for one month and that's fully paid. We've also seen companies uh, innovate and look into additional support for the father after uh, his wife has had, you know, has gone through a stillbirth and miscarriage. Because often, Helen, people forget the father has also lost a baby. And often you you associate you associate parental leave or, you know, a special leave in these cases with the mother. Uh, we're trying to um, encourage workplaces to also uh, support the father in these ways. I think that is so, so crucial because we've seen studies and actually your website's a fantastic resource for understanding the benefits to a business, but also to society when parents are looked after in the workplace. And this can relate to mental health of the children, of you know just how well a society does when a mother in particular is supported. Um, and I wanted to ask you about some of those benefits. Why do you feel like UAE companies should be striving to have that parent-friendly label? What are some of the benefits to them, even to their bottom line, Leila? So first of all, it makes total business sense, right? So if you want to look at it from the business angle, when an employee feels supported in their workplace to balance life and work, it improves their well-being, it reduces their mental, sorry, their, their parental stress. And we know that employees' well-being is a key factor in determining an organization's long-term success. So mm-hmm. from the business angle, it just makes total sense. We've seen impact on productivity, on uh, positive impact on uh, attracting and retaining talent, improving an organization's uh, reputation. We've seen loyalty and morale go up in the organizations that have uh, earned the label. If you look at it from the community angle, which we like to look at at from, you know, at the Abu Dhabi Early Childhood Authority, we know that a child's early years are the magical years. Yes, they're the hardest, Helen. We know that (laughs) as mothers, right? They have their moments. But they are really magical. (laughs) They are really magical. And and absolutely, you know, we're starting to learn more and more about, you know, just how much of a, you know, a child's identity, their, you know, their attachment is 
is really locked in in those early years. So to be able to have your you know parent around more, to have a happy parent around more, is absolutely crucial. We're going to be exploring this more, and we'd love to hear from you. Do you feel like your company is particularly parent friendly? Leila Al Hassan with us today, senior advisor at the Abu Dhabi Early Childhood Authority. They have just opened up the application process. So if you feel like you would like to throw your hat into the ring as a private or semi-government organisation that's been around for two years, up next. I'm hoping Layla's going to name a couple of companies that we want to shine a light on from the last cohort um, and also kind of talking about exactly that, how to apply. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. With Vietnamese foodies, fresh, naturally healthy and affordable dishes with authentic Vietnamese flavours. Order now on all delivery platforms. Visit vietnamesefoodies.com. Helen, with you through until five o'clock today, I'm in conversation now with Leila Hassan, Senior Advisor at the Abu Dhabi Early Childhood Authority. We're exploring the concept and certification of parent-friendly workplaces here in the UAE. We've just been establishing some of the benefits to the employer and indeed society to be deemed parent-friendly from Coaching when someone goes on to parental leave to, of course, parental leave itself, increased flexibility. Um, applications are now open for the latest round of awards, for want of a better phrase. Um, and I think it is really, really fascinating to think about what is happening and just how beneficial it must be when it comes to having that edge as an employer. You know, if you, if you are in, you know, a candidate who's lucky enough to have two job offers and one is a certified parent-friendly company, whether you are a parent at that stage or not, that, to my mind, must be hugely, hugely attractive. Um, and Layla, on the website, you do name and celebrate some of the companies that are doing fantastic things. And it's all sorts of different industries. And that's what I wanted to ask you. you know, are you noticing any patterns or even you know, the industries, the company sizes that are really, as you put it so beautifully before, going above and beyond what labour law states? What have you noticed? So we've noticed some interesting trends, and the one I wanted to highlight today was that these are organizations that come from 25 different industries. Um, They're large, they're small. It really comes down to organizations' leadership's will, interest in this, and there's usually an internal champion who drives the application process. We've also noticed that organizations can quickly go from what's usually a practice in the organization to institutionalizing it within the DNA of the organization organization and making it a policy, Helen. Mm-hmm. And so that's really important because it, it makes it, it gives it a longer shelf life and the organization changes, it changes management, but it's still the way things are done at that organization. And that's really important. I'm happy to give a few shout outs because I think it's I think it's really interesting to, to talk about that. So 17 we, shout outs. I'm not sure I've, I'm not sure I've got space for 17, but the, but the full list is in there. Uh, so Shalou Group, Novartis, Hubara, fantastic comms agency here, Visa Middle East. Um, I was on a panel actually with somebody from Visa Middle East recently and they were talking about the amount of um, paternal leave and it was astounding to me. Um, and as I said earlier, kind of coaching someone onto going onto that and then bringing them back into the workplace. NAB to Health, um, Sophie Smith doing a fantastic job there. Um, Bain and Company. So if you want to have a look at that list, you can go to eca.gov.ae. And my last question to you is for anyone out there who is eligible to apply, it's, it's free to apply, I understand. How, how can people get that parent-friendly label, Leila? 
So definitely first check if you're eligible. You need to have been set up in the UAE for at least two years. You're based in, you're from the private sector or the semi-government sector. Second, we really encourage you to get familiar with the criteria. See if this is the right fit for your organization. See if this is something, see where you stand first, you know, mm -hmm. do an internal assessment. Finally, get on that online application, you know, start it. It's Yes, we have an application window of six months, but time flies. So start your application, circulate your parent-friendly experience survey to your employees because their voice matters. The deadline is September 2, and we have a lot of awareness webinars set up if anyone uh, would like to join them to get some more clarification. Thank you so, so much. We're going to make it even easier. If you want to send me the word parent to 4001, um, I will happily send you that link. It's talking lots about the benefits to businesses, to society, individuals, of course, of being a parent-friendly workplace. Leila Hassan, really, really appreciate your time. Leila Hassan speaking to us from Abu Dhabi you, Early Anna. Childhood Authority, where she's a senior advisor. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.